Welcome to Gone Native. This is Miles Burke. Visit gonenative.substack.com for more articles and podcasts like the one you're about to hear right now. The chocolate dream becomes a nightmare. Rural cacao farmers in Colombia are being displaced by fighting between narco-mafias, excaria dissidents, paramilitaries, and Mexican drug cartels. Just a note before I get started, I meant to publish more on the La Guajira region of Colombia this week, but today's article is on a subject which I've been following for a while and which took on greater significance after an offhand comment by a friend of a friend the other day. We'll get back to La Guajira in the next couple of weeks, along with some pretty amazing footage I took in the desert there, but for now you can read about this worrying phenomenon in areas like Urabá, Chocó, Tumaco, and many other rural-slash-farming areas in Colombia. Quote, that delinquent, that bandit, that vermin, that sewer rat, we're going to extradite him, said outgoing president of Colombia, Ivan Duque, from onboard the presidential jet, after the capture of Dairo Antonio Usuga, alias Otoniel, head of the Clan del Golfo drug cartel, at a safe house deep in the remote Urabá region of the northwestern department of Antioquia in Colombia during October of 2021. The kind of dehumanizing rancor on display in President Duque's statement is common when it comes to how public officials refer to members of the various criminal groups which control the drug trade in Colombia. But that dehumanization cuts both ways. Police and soldiers are also ratas, or rats, to the narcos, and both sides in this high-stakes cops and robbers game are prone to all kinds of inhumane behavior when dealing with the other side. All that does is make it easier for combatants to treat each other as something less than human, and even animals receive better treatment than some of the things people have done to each other during Colombia's intractable internal conflict. As combined U.S., Latin American, and European anti-drug operations continue to bring down the heads of major drug trafficking cartels, killing or capturing drug lords like Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, Rafael Caro Quintero, or Otoniel himself, drug violence continues to increase, intensify, and decentralize throughout cocaine-producing countries like Colombia. After Otoniel's arrest and rapid extradition to the U.S., the Clan del Golfo, who call themselves alternately the Urabeños, or Autodefensas Caetanistas de Colombia, or AGC, depending on the political needs of the moment, declared a paro armado, or armed strike, in the region of Urabá, the home territory of the Clan del Golfo, and a valuable drug smuggling area, since the rugged, largely undeveloped territory touches both the Pacific and Caribbean, providing opportunities via both maritime routes. Trucks were abandoned in roadways and set on fire. Bombs were set off at police stations and army barracks. Soldiers and national police officers were attacked or assassinated. And workers were told they would be killed if they went to their jobs. Many of those workers were small farmers or employees of large ranches or banana, plantain, cacao, and other plantations which peppered the fertile coastal region. Agricultural producers suffered tremendous losses during the Paro Armado. As the violence instigated by the Clan del Golfo increased, other narco gangs, splinter elements of the Urabeños themselves, even foreign syndicates like the Mexican Sinaloa and Jalisco cartels, began moving in on the clan's territory, attempting to capture pieces of it for themselves to control cocaine production and smuggling routes. In a story which has grown depressingly familiar, many poor rural campesinos, small farmers, and even large plantation owners have been forced off their land or had to shut down operations, leaving farmers dependent on agricultural income without the means to support themselves and their families, and in many cases without even a home to return to. In the department of Nariño, around the port city of Tumaco on Colombia's Pacific coast, 
Rural cacao farmers who had been enjoying increased output and profits from sustainable agriculture and community development initiatives in the area are now being pushed off their land and displaced by a renewed wave of violence resulting from turf wars among the various criminal groups vying for control of local drug production and exportation. In a surprising twist, Colombian underworld groups are facing increased competition from Mexican drug cartels, most notably the Sinaloa cartel, on their own territory. Mexican cartel operatives are known as ambassadors on the ground in Colombia and are now an increasing source of much of the violence, instability, and rural displacement far from the borders of their own country. Considering the notorious ruthlessness of Colombian drug traffickers, it's surprising that Mexican cartels have been able to establish such a significant foothold in these areas. While it might be tempting to just sit back and let them kill each other, one group will eventually come out on top, capturing all of the muscle, labor, drug production, and smuggling infrastructure, making them more powerful than ever. If it feels like we've heard this story before, it's because we have. Every time a major drug lord, cartel, or smuggling ring is taken down by law enforcement, another one rises up to take its place in an endless game of bloody, murderous whack-a-mole. The Farmer and the Narco Colombian agricultural production of crops like cacao for processing into chocolate and other goods has been increasing in recent years as companies, NGOs, and community organizations work to consolidate local farmers, educate them on sustainable growing practices, employ them in formal jobs on larger plantations, and get their product to market for a good price. Output was going up by dozens, even hundreds of tons every season, barring bad weather or natural disasters, and things were starting to turn around for the farmers of places like Nariño and Urabá, after the bad old days of extreme drug violence impacting their lives, families, and homes. Many switched from growing coca for cocaine producers to growing cacao, among other crops, which I once heard described by someone intimately familiar with the situation in this way. Quote, You get everyone to stop growing coca and switch to cacao, and the drug gangs just sort of disappear. Unquote. Crop replacement is not the ideal solution for ending drug violence since large-scale growing of coca and exporting of cocaine will just move to other areas where other farmers can be bought, pressured, or extorted into growing coca, and poor people with few opportunities can be recruited as labor or muscle. In very poor areas like Tumaco, money talks louder than anything except a bullet, and sometimes even the bullet has to quiet down so money can speak. Narco-traffickers prey on people's desperation, pushing them into working for them or growing coca, which farmers can get paid for in cash, often better than any other legitimate crops. Many highly reputable large-scale studies have reported the same finding, that legalization, regulation, and taxation of recreational drugs like cocaine, heroin, and marijuana seems to be the only real solution for ending drug violence writ large. The Colombian Comisión de la Verdad, or Truth Commission, which recently concluded a 3.5-year report on the 60-plus-year internal conflict, published as one of its major findings that, in order to end the ongoing internal conflict over drug trafficking, which has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives and forcibly displaced millions more, countries around the world must transition away from a regime of prohibition of recreational drugs to one of tolerance and regulation. Prohibition only allows black markets to thrive, as we've seen time and time again during the decades-long war on drugs back to alcohol prohibition in the United States in the early 20th century. Black markets, by their very nature, operate outside the law, which inevitably leads to conflict over territory, profits, and control of trade routes, which leads to violence on a wider and wider scale, eventually spilling over into local communities and creating the kind of chaos which has been ascendant in Colombia for more than half a century. The 2016 peace accord signed with the FARC, which ended a major contributing factor to over 60 years of armed internal conflict in the country, were hailed as a victory in the drug war. 
The FARC and other guerrilla groups like the ELN were slash are notorious for perpetuating the same tired old story. Getting involved with the drug trade to finance their operations, which has a corrupting influence on whatever their original political motivations might have been, until they become little more than a perennial narco-terrorist group. Making money off the exploitation of young-slash-desperate-slash-poor people and rural farmers with little choice but to either abandon their land or give in to the narco's demands. Much of the logic of the drug war was built around fighting so-called narco-guerrillas, along with the major cartels and other drug-smuggling gangs and organizations. With the extinction of the FARC as a major militant-slash-political force in the country, people thought that most of the violence would go along with it. That was not to be. The McDonald's Model of Drug Smuggling After a brief lull, like the calm before a storm, when high-pressure air gathers outside a low-pressure zone and then rushes in to fill it, bringing lightning, wind, and torrential rains, other criminal organizations began to rush in to fill the power gap left by the capitulation of the FARC. Dissident fronts of the FARC who refused to surrender, factions of the Ejército de Liberación Nacional, or ELN, elements of the Urbeños-slash-Clan del Golfo, and myriad other criminal groups and independent smugglers began to fight among themselves over who would control valuable drug production areas and smuggling routes. For several years, the Clan del Golfo was the most effective among all these groups at maintaining control over the drug trade throughout Colombia, which also made them public enemy number one for anti-narcotics police and armed forces, as well as countries like the United States with, quote, interests in keeping the drug trade under control. The Clan del Golfo itself was not a traditional drug cartel as we know them, which unify competing criminal groups to manage every aspect of drug production and distribution. Instead, they operated through a sort of franchise model, licensing their name to smaller groups who operated under the auspices of the Urbanos slash AGC slash Clan del Golfo, but were in fact autonomous organizations who answered to nobody but themselves. In exchange for a cut of the profits, the Urbanos provided logistical support for their web of franchisees, access to resources, smuggling routes, transport, and protection, both physical and political. This McDonald's model of drug smuggling worked well for a time, but with the Urbanos in the spotlights of anti-drug forces, it couldn't last forever. Like they have with so many other cartels, mafias, gangs, and smugglers, law enforcement chipped away at the group until it was cornered, broke, and unable to do much except run and hide from impending arrest and, most likely, extradition to the U.S. of their leaders and key operatives. Now, with the Uribeños brought low, another power vacuum was opened up, and all of their former franchisees, along with competitor groups like the Rastrojos, FARC dissidents, ELN, and Mexican cartels, have upped the stakes yet again with fresh outbreaks of violence all around regions like Urba and Nariño. As always happens in these situations, rural people and farmers have been caught in the middle, forced to flee the violence, give up their land at gunpoint or machete point, or work for one of the disparate criminal factions, growing coca or working to process it into cocaine. Cacao production in particular, just in Tumaco, has gone off a cliff, as plantations have been forced to shut down or abandon their property, and farmers themselves forced into the aforementioned impossible choice. Many of them have joined the ranks of the nearly 8 million displaced people in Colombia who have been forced to leave their homes all over the country during the internal conflict, which has lasted since at least the 1960s. Cocaine is a great drug. I will admit that I tried cocaine once, when I was living in San Diego and my roommate got her hands on some, which she showed me how to snort up your nose with a plastic tube off a smooth, hard surface like a makeup compact or a glass table. And one time was enough to know that this stuff was so great I could never touch it again. 
I have something of an addictive personality, which I try to keep under control with healthy activities like exercise and cooking. But Coke was just so damn good that it was obvious to me how hard it would be to resist using it all the time. I remember how charged with vital energy and alive I felt, the intense body high and sharpened mental state, which ended up with me banging on my upstairs neighbor's window with a broomstick in the middle of the night, trying to wake him up so we could hang out and talk about all the crazy ideas I had running through my head. Oddly enough, he indulged me, sitting on the floor of his room until 3 a.m., next to his bongos in the glass terrarium where he kept his pet albino ball python. Something told me it wasn't the first time some coked-out lunatic had kept him up all night, jabbering his ears off with wild nonsense until a drug wore off and they wandered away to pass out, as I eventually did. Such are the nature of these drugs. Cocaine is a refined, processed version of the powerful alkaloid found in coca leaves, which indigenous communities in the South American Andes have been using as a natural stimulant for millennia. Coca and cocaine are analogous to caffeine, which drinking in a cup of coffee is much less potent than snorting pure caffeine up your nose would be, or ingesting pure nicotine in place of smoking a cigarette. There's an argument to be made that the refined version of these drugs in their illegal form is just too potent and too prone to being mixed with other dangerous substances like fentanyl by drug dealers trying to stretch out their supply at the expense of users. If the market were to be controlled, the purity and contents of drugs like opium and cocaine, legally measured and regulated, people may be able to engage in safe recreational use of the substances without the kind of violence and degradation which all too often surrounds drug users. People are going to get high no matter what, so we might as well help them to do it safely, and the government can slap a fat excise tax on it in the meantime. Look at California. Governor Gavin Newsom recently declared a $97.5 billion budget surplus, much of which was thanks to extraordinary profits generated not just from immense capital gains taxes, but from taxing cannabis operations in the state. That particular subject is a whole kettle of fish, and there are questions around the state's intentional denial or revocation of permits for other types of commercial and industrial operations in order to allow more cannabis growers and dispensaries, who can now be taxed at $161 a pound for raw marijuana, plus a 15% excise tax on all sales. Add local cultivation, manufacturing, processing, distribution, and retail taxes, and you've got a hell of a tax windfall on your hands. No government should be allowed to run at such an incredible surplus, and it may turn out that the reason the state of California has so much money left over after fiscal year 2021 is that taxes were just too high, and funds were too poorly allocated to public programs and local jurisdictions which badly needed them to help manage problems like decaying infrastructure and rampant homelessness. But for now, there's no denying the amount of cash the state has left over in its coffers. Governor Newsom announced that the state will be distributing $18 billion worth of, quote, inflation relief checks later in 2022 to millions of Californians who fall below a certain income threshold, with larger stimulus amounts available to families with children and dependents. This is more than likely a bid by Newsom to help win re-election, and probably comes as too little too late for the Californians receiving the stimulus, but for people and families suffering under rampant inflation and deteriorating economic conditions, the payments will no doubt be very welcome. Another great example is Portugal, which in 2001 began a process of decriminalizing all recreational drug use. If you ever had doubts that decriminalizing drugs would lead to less drug use, allow the Portuguese, among other countries who have adopted similar measures, to set those doubts to rest. Since the program was begun, problematic drug use, overdose deaths, HIV and hepatitis infections from contaminated needles, and jail sentences for drug-related offenses have all plummeted. Decriminalization doesn't mean completely legal. It just means that ordinary drug users are no longer persecuted or arrested for their habits. 
making it a much less risky behavior, which, oddly enough, decreases risk factors for all kinds of negative outcomes like jail, addiction, or death. Will ending the war on drugs save the world? So much of the suffering and violence we see around the world today comes as a direct or indirect result of the prohibition and criminalization of recreational drugs. Certainly in Latin America, illegal drugs and the money they generate have been a major contributor, if not the primary motivating factor, behind decades of armed conflict, corruption, murder, rape, torture, human trafficking, child abuse, forced recruitment, displacement, exile, and near-genocidal atrocities in countries like El Salvador, Chile, and Argentina throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Even governments who have genuinely acted with the best interests of their citizens in mind, which is always dubious in a region like Latin America, but undeniably true on many occasions, are often forced by international economic and military interests, such as those from the United States or Western Europe, I'm thinking of the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, and the World Bank here, along with the U.S. State Department, USAID, CIA, and British government, to name a few, to accede to demands for helping them fight the drug war, in order to access financing those developing countries desperately need. Many of these countries are running tremendous deficits just from taking loans from the IMF, for example, which will take decades or even centuries to pay off, just to finance critical infrastructure, economic development, and public welfare that still lags far behind more developed countries. The governments of countries like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, who have taken political stances that the U.S. decides it cannot allow within its sphere of influence, have been forced to crawl into bed with narco-traffickers as one of the few economic avenues left to them under U.S. embargoes and sanctions, which always affect the ordinary people of those countries far more than the elites, who live in cushioned money and power bubbles that insulate them from the worst effects of international restrictions on trade and finance. This effectively creates narco-states, who are now relegated even further down the totem pole of pariahood as their resources are used by corrupt government officials and business people to help funnel drugs and money back and forth from the countries where the drugs are produced to the ones where the drugs are mostly bought and consumed, which ironically are never the same places. Most Colombians that I know are deeply distrustful of drugs of any kind, besides the old standbys of booze, cigarettes, and coffee, for understandable reasons, and many have never even seen cocaine. It is a tragedy of the highest order that an entire country, which is such a beautiful, vibrant, endlessly fascinating, and wonderful place, has been made to suffer for the actions of a few unscrupulous individuals willing to do just about anything to anyone in order to make big piles of money. But even narco-traffickers are a symptom, not the cause, of the militarized war against illegal drugs. Mass incarceration in the United States is another example of a horrible consequence of the drug war, since one in five people locked up in U.S. prisons is there for a nonviolent drug offense. There are other reasons why mass incarceration is a problem in the U.S., including historical racism and discrimination against the poor, but that's a conversation for another day and another article. Even the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have a drug war component to them religion, politics, and oil aside, since the Middle East region is a major center for opium production, as well as transport hub for South American cocaine to reach European and Asian markets. Many of the operations involved in the so-called global war on terror have been targeted at drug smugglers and producers, which just serves to perpetuate the same sorts of cycles of violence which persisted in places like Colombia for so long. Be forewarned, I'm about to climb on my proverbial soapbox again. Unless the militarized war on drugs and the international prohibition regime is brought to an end, drug violence will continue to plague us all in a never-ending cycle of destruction, misery, and death. It is time to end the drug war, 
which, let's be honest, was lost a long time ago. And why was it lost? It was lost because people like to get high, and when there's demand, there will always be supply. Perhaps instead of denying human nature, we could find better ways to serve and support people's needs, and to give them what they want in safe, legal ways, instead of killing them, throwing them in prison, or making whole communities, even countries, suffer as a result of drug users' bad habits. Let's face it, we lost the war on drugs, and drugs won. Who said that, by the way? Maybe it's time we learn to humble ourselves and accept defeat. Stop beating our heads against an implacable enemy, surrender, and learn how to live with it. Perhaps by learning a little humility, we can all help to make things a little bit better for everyone. Thanks for listening to the audio version of this article. For more, please visit gonenative.substack.com, where you can find links to all of our articles, videos, podcasts, documentaries, and more, as well as links to subscribe to this podcast via RSS or any podcast app you might use. You can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash gonenative. Find all our documentaries and videos there, as well as video versions of all of our podcasts and articles, or on social media at Gone Native Media. And won't you please subscribe, give us a like, leave us a comment, uh, let us know what you think about what we're doing here at Gone Native. Saludos! Saludos!